Welcome to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. We pray this message leads you both to know and show the love of Christ in all areas of life. We will now dive into our scripture reading, followed by this week's message. Today, God speaks to us from Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 1 to 3, and chapter 9, verses 1 to 12. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power. There was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead, more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not yet who has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. So I reflected on all this and concluded that the righteous and the wise and what they do are in God's hands. But no one knows whether love or hate awaits them. All share a common destiny, the righteous and the wicked, the good and the bad, the clean and the unclean, those who offer sacrifices and those who do not. As it is with the good, so with the sinful, As it is with those who take oaths, so with those who are afraid to take them. This is the evil in everything that happens under the sun. The same destiny overtakes all. The hearts of people, moreover, are full of evil, and there is madness in their hearts while they live. And afterward, they join the dead. Anyone who is among the living has hope. Even a live dog is better off than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. They have no further reward, and even their name is forgotten. Their love, their hate, their jealousy have long since vanished. Never again will they have a part in anything that happens under the sun. Go eat your food with gladness and drink your wine with a joyful heart, for God has already approved what you do. Always be clothed in white and always anoint your head with oil. Enjoy life with your wife, whom you love, all the days of this meaningless life that God has given you under the sun. All your meaningless days, for this is your lot in life and in your toilsome labor under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For in the realm of the dead, where you are going, there is neither working, nor planning, nor knowledge, nor wisdom. I have seen something else under the sun. The race is not to the swift or the battle to the strong, nor does food come to the wise or wealth to the brilliant or favor to the learned but time and chance happen to them all. Moreover, no one knows when their hour will come. As fish are caught in a cruel net or birds are taken in a snare, so people are trapped by evil times that fall unexpectedly upon them. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So in a sermon back in uh, 1853, uh, abolitionist minister Theodore Parker said this. He said, I do not pretend to understand the moral universe. The ark is a long one. My eye reaches but little ways. I cannot calculate the curve and complete the figure by experience of sight. I can, I can divine it be conscious. But from what I see, I am sure it bends toward justice. Now, 115 years later, uh, Martin Luther King restated that idea in a famous speech in which he said, We shall overcome because the ark of the moral universe is long but it bends toward justice. And then 40 years later, after that, President Barack Obama, inspired by that idea, had that quote woven into the rug of the Oval Office. 
Now, I note this because for 170 years, this idea of the universe moving in the direction of justice has been a sustaining orientation of the civil rights movement in the United States. But the question before us is, is it true? Is it true that the moral arc of the universe is one bent toward justice? Now, if you've been with us, uh, you know that we've been in a series called The Longing, which has been a look at the book of Ecclesiastes. And each week, we've considered the wisdom of the teacher in the book of Ecclesiastes to process the longings that we all have for things like meaning and purpose and wisdom and pleasure. And last week, we considered identity. And today, what we're going to do is take a look at what the teacher has to show us about this longing that we seem to have for justice. So what I want to do, I want to take a look at what the teacher has to show us uh, and how justice can actually contribute to us understanding our purpose in life by considering three things. I want to take a look at the meaninglessness of justice, the basis of justice, and then finally the moral arc of justice, right? So first, the meaninglessness. Look at how the teacher understands justice. He notes all the oppressions that exist in the world, and that there is no one that can be comfort, that can comfort the oppressed, he says in verse one. And then he goes on in verses two and three, where he basically says, listen, it's just better if you're dead, so that you don't have to see all of the evil deeds that are being done under the sun. And then in chapter nine, in verse two, he says that all share a common destiny, that the righteous and the wicked, the good and the bad, verse 3 says that this is the evil in everything that happens under the sun, the same destiny overtakes all. In verse 7 through 10, he says that the best that you can do is just enjoy your meaningless life wherever you are. Just work, and as verse 10 says, work with all your might for the realm of the dead. Where you are going, there is neither working nor planning nor knowledge nor wisdom, And he concludes in verse 12 that as fish are caught in a cruel net or birds taken in a snare, so people are trapped by evil times that uh, fall unexpectedly upon them. So in sum, the teacher is saying, your life is meaningless. And so because your life is meaningless, justice is meaningless. There will always be an oppressor. There will always be the oppressed. And in the end, what difference does it make which side you're on? Your fate is going to be the same. So just be satisfied with your station in life. Ride it out for as long as you can until you're dead. I mean, and that's pretty accurate when you consider justice under the sun, as we've seen over and over again. When you consider justice kind of in the confines in the world in which we live, it's true to some degree. Your life, as we've seen over and over again, is meaningless. And that means that the life of other people is also meaningless, which means that there is no reason to care about justice. There's no reason to care what happens to the person that's next to you. If you're the oppressor, okay, I guess that's just God's plan for you. If you're the oppressed, okay, I guess that's just God's plans for you. If you're indifferent to it all, okay, I guess that's God's plan for you. Just write it out until you're dead. And frankly, when you consider the continued brokenness of this world, I think that kind of stacks up. I mean, the meaninglessness of justice under the sun seems pretty self-evident. 
Because no matter what progress in creating a just world that we think that we've achieved, a right understanding of injustice, I think, says otherwise. And to show you what I mean, you know, we could spend some time recounting millennia of various injustices. The problem with naming all the injustices that we've, uh, that we've seen occur over the course of all of human history is that I do find that it tends to allow us to disassociate from that injustice because of distance. You know, as though injustice was really something of the past. But for some, because for some, the reason why we disassociate is that for some, it, they would just say, well, the world is a much better place than it used to be. And so we don't need to be as concerned about certain injustices because we're, we're progressing over time. But the question that I want to put in front of us is, have we really progressed? Have things actually gotten better over the course of human history? I mean, some of the most horrific injustices that the world has ever known has happened in recent history, in the lifetime of people that are still with us. I mean, just consider the body count of the 21st century alone. Right? A time believed, over the course of history, a time to, uh, believed to be one of the most enlightened in, hi- in human history. I mean, just consider what, was to, what took place in the, the center of enlightenment thinking in Europe. I mean, upwards of 11 million people were murdered under the Nazi regime. And of course, we name that as one of the most horrendous evils of our modern time, but As Americans, we look at something horrible like the Holocaust and we disassociate ourselves from it, assuming that we've got the moral high ground with even that kind of horrific season of of, uh, uh, world history. But the question is, where did the Nazis get some of their legal basis for their pursuits of this Aryan society? Well, in his book, Hitler's American Model, James Whitman from Yale, he traces the Nazi regime and how uh, interested the Nazis actually were in American race law. The reason why they were so intrigued by American race law is they wanted to see how you could establish a society of law and order that privileged one group, marginalized another, without that society devolving into chaos. We kind of perfected that at that point. In one particular example, Whitman notes the writings of a German lawyer, Heinrich Krager, who was, quote, the single most important figure in the Nazi assimilation of American race law. He came to the U.S. as an exchange student seeking to to deploy the historical and legal knowledge in the service of the Aryan racial purity that the Nazis were pursuing. He found the basis for Nazi race law in our laws. Now, I note that simply so that we don't completely disassociate ourselves from such horrific injustices. We tend to idealize our own history by looking down on horrible injustices, assuming ourselves better, when in the end, even the most horrendous, we've in some ways been associated with. I mean, just consider what's happened since then. Oh my goodness, I'm at a very high level. But just consider things like the bombing of Nagasaki and Hiroshima, right? Between the bombing itself and the after effects, approximately 200,000 people were killed. Now, of course, that was part of, we were in a war, but most of those people were civilians. Several years ago, I was uh, doing a musical tour in Tokyo, and I met several people, generations later, who are still 
affected by the latent radiation that is existent there now. You know, just consider what's happened in the last 100 years. 100 million people have been killed in the last 100 years under communist regimes. The 21st century has been one of the bloodiest centuries in human history. More immediately, upwards of 335,000 civilians have died violent deaths as a direct result of the war on terror. Since 2005, 26,000 children have been killed or maimed in the war in Afghanistan alone. And there are many reasons why, of course, this is devastating and heartbreaking and so much of it is, is wrapped up in war and it's complicated. But in the end, these are civilian deaths. And how can we look at a civilian death especially the death of children, and not see something unjust there. Over the course of modern history, you know, we've seen dictators come and go in Central and South America and many African countries. And those dictators in many, in many places have been tolerated by us because of their willingness to ensure a steady stream of supplies that come from their countries. The Congo another region my wife and I have spent much time, is one of the wealthiest nations in the world when it comes to natural resources. But it's also one of the poorest and most corrupt places because a small few group of people hold the vastness of the resources that are there, and they're propped up as dictators because there are many around the world, including in the West, who benefit from these cheap resources that enrich the few and leave many in poverty. I was just listening uh, yesterday to a report about the human toll that's being taken on various Asian countries, civilians, and, and the population in these various Asian countries because of the trash that we ship to them. In the U.S., hundreds of thousands of children are lost to abortion each year. 50 million plus since 1973, and I know that it's a complicated issue with unplanned pregnancy, complications that we desire to have compassion for and complications that are also often rooted in other forms of injustice. And yet when you take a look from the perspective of the child, what else is it to call what happens to that child as an injustice inflicted on them? To get really local, really specific, you know, we live in a time where the issue of gentrification is front and center for many. And I know that it's a complicated issue that involves complex, mar complex market forces that are often beyond our control. But just consider the areas that are having the greatest amount of change in demographics. I mean, these, those communities are often communities that are historically impacted by uh, things like white flight and uh, redlining, which pave the way for this uh, wave of gentrifiers to come in and redefine the culture and the story of neighborhoods that were once uh, marginalized. I mean, just consider the fact that we are 400 years into uh, a society where over the course of that time, there's been grave injustices against natives and African-Americans. And that we now, 400 years later, are still failing so often to live up to the ideals to be a nation of freedom and equity for all. Many pockets of the church even resist any meaningful change in this one particular area, in a nation like the United States that has prized itself as being a nation of justice, we also must realize that even now, though we might be more just than some, we're far from being a just nation. 
We need to hold those things in tension. Otherwise, we're never going to be able to see meaningful change. I could go on and on. But the point is simply this, is that there is a never-ending, constant stream of injustice. Always. Everywhere. And to make it worse, there are many of us who can live a life every day without experiencing the burdens of that injustice and never give any meaningful thoughts about that injustice, or we have the privilege enough to be dismissive of that injustice when it comes up. As someone, and I will say this for myself personally, as someone who has privilege, the privilege of not experiencing direct imp- the direct impact of injustices, I can say that that alone my ability and my privilege to be able to disassociate from injustices that occur even around me is in, a, is in and of itself. There's something unjust about me being able to disassociate in that way. I mean, everyone in this room, to varying degrees and in different ways, we contribute to the injustice, whether we are directly contributing or we just are passive about what's happening with no real interest in getting involved in fixing it, In that sense, we're all part of the problem. In chapter 3 of Ecclesiastes, the teacher makes the statement that even in the places of justice, wickedness was there. That that passage has stuck with me ever since uh, I came across it and been studying it. Even in the places where we would say there is the most justice, wickedness still exists. This is why justice is meaningless. Pursuing justice is meaningless because it always persists. And there's a couple of reactions that I think that some might have to this. For some, the persistence of injustice just leads them to despair. I mean, there there are those who are just textbook nihilists who reject anything meaningful at all because of the injustice in the world. There's others who are on the exact opposite end of that spectrum who fight and they rage against injustice, but it exhausts them because they lose all hope that meaningful change will occur. And then, of course, there's others. In order to help themselves feel better at night, we will say things like, well, things are better than they used to be, and that should just be enough. And I think all of those responses actually are very much in line with what the teacher is presenting to us. All of those are in alignment with this idea of under the sun, the same destiny overtakes all. So why try to make anything better. This is the whole point. This is the tension that the teacher of Ecclesiastes is trying to put in front of us. Again, we need to remember that the book of Ecclesiastes is a book that is considering these things solely from the perspective of one trapped inside this temporal world under the sun. It's, it's a book that rejects anything of the transcendent. It's the only book of the Bible written from a secular, skeptic position. And so the teacher is putting in front of us, listen, if you only see justice as something that's going to occur within this temporal world under the sun, then justice is hevel. It's meaningless because it will always be with you. The problem, though, with taking only that approach is that the Bible has a lot more to say about justice than just what we see in the book of Ecclesiastes. We've said this before. The book of Ecclesiastes asks the questions. It never really gives us the answers. And so now we have before us, what then is justice? If injustice is always with us, what is it? 
And is there justice that exists beyond just what's in our temporal world? And that's where we get to the basis for justice, to see a transcendence to justice. Another passage of Scripture that often comes to mind for me when answering the question, what is justice, is Psalm 89, verse 14. It simply says this, that righteousness and justice are the foundations of your throne. The psalmist says that righteousness and justice are the foundations of God's throne. What is the throne of God? Well, we need to think about it not so much as like an actual throne that God is sitting on, but rather throughout the Bible, the language of God's throne is essentially a place of power and authority, of majesty and honor. It's a way of describing his sovereignty, his purity, his, the eternal life, and the grace that he gives. So the throne of God is a description of the rule of God and his reign over all things. It's a description of his characteristics as king. And the foundation of his rule, of his character, is righteousness and justice. Now, I want to take a look at those two words quickly. Because in the Old Testament, when, you, when you're reading uh, Psalm 89, two different Hebrew words are being used there um, for justice and righteousness. The first that I want to consider is a word that's uh, a word mishpat, and the second being zedekah. Now, mishpat, which we would define as justice, or we translate as justice, rather, uh, is basically what we think it to be. It means to treat people equitably, equitably and fairly under the law, showing no partiality. So mishpat is essentially people getting what they deserve, whether it's their rights, rewards, or punishment, but receiving those equally, not showing partiality under the law. But then you have this word zedekah, which we define and we translate as righteousness, and that speaks of living in right relationship with others. And we often think about righteousness in terms of personal piety or morality, which it certainly includes, but the meaning is far broader as it includes how we conduct ourselves in everyday lives, not just in the moments of reward or punishment. Uh, one, one pastor put it this way. So that Zedekah is behavior that if was prevalent in the world would render rectifying justice or mishpat unnecessary because everyone would be living in the right relationship to everyone else. Therefore, through Zedekah, though Zedekah is primarily about being in right relationship with God, the righteous life that results is profoundly social. So here's how you can break that down into the bottom line. Mishpat is creating systems and structures that are fair. Zedekah is living justly in all of our relationships. Now, I draw these out because this is, according to Psalm 89, the foundation of God's rule and reign. This is the nature of his kingdom. And this is why justice is worth pursuing because these ideas are foundational to how God intends to rule and reign over the cosmos. It is worth pursuing because in the end, righteousness and justice are the mark of God's kingdom. And for the church of Christ, this becomes our fundamental orientation around these things. Because the task of the church, and here's where this impacts those of us here who are Christians, the task of the church is to bear witness 
to God's invisible kingdom. John Calvin put it this way, that it's the task of the church to make the invisible kingdom of Christ visible. Though invisible, it is nonetheless real. God's kingdom, God's rule, one marked by righteousness and justice, is part of that invisible kingdom, and the church is called to make that invisible kingdom known and seen and experienced. Now, I will also say that we do have a tendency to err by assuming mishpat or zedekah over one another. What I mean by that is, uh, for some, we will say, well, you know, I treat everyone with respect and equally. Therefore, I do not really need to care about structural issues or systems issues because I'm really only responsible for myself. And so how can I be responsible for anything more than myself? That, however, is a rejection of mishpat. It's a rejection of seeing how we can create systems and structures that are fair and equitable. But on the flip side, the, also, the flip side can also be true. Some might only consider the, the structural and the systems problems, but then give no consideration to how they treat their families and their neighbors and their friends or their personal relationships. You know, when a civil rights activist demands structural change but then, or berates, uh, berates uh, uh, an employee, that's injustice. That's a rejection of zedekah, living rightly. But when we look out into the world, we see a constant lack of mishpat, systems and structures, and zedekah, just living. And the upshot of all this is that where there is no justice, or where one perpetuates injustice through direct action or passivity, they are, in those moments, rejecting the rule and reign of God. Injustice is not some inconvenience to deal with, but rather it's an idolatry that desires to take God off his throne. And as I hope you're coming to realize, we're all, at times, part of the injustice in the world, which means that in some sense we are all held accountable for injustice and unrighteousness that we allow to happen because it's a rejection of God's rule in those places. How then do we rectify the tension between a world of constant injustices, the assertion that God's rule and reign is one of justice, and that we are held accountable for the ways that injustice exists in the world? Well, this is where we get to where we started, is that we have to consider, consider the arc of justice, the moral arc of justice. Now, I started by stating the words of Teddy Parker, that there is this moral arc of justice in the universe. Now, according to the teacher of Ecclesiastes, those words are absolute nonsense. Because, as I said, justice is meaningless, because life is meaningless, and so the best we can do is just do what's best for ourselves, none of which is leading us to this just universe. It just leads to new ways of being unjust, and history has proven that to be the case over and over and over again. But the Christian rejects the notion of meaninglessness. We've been looking at this over and over again because we understand that there is something far greater, far more profound than just what can be experienced here. We understand the idea behind the moral arc of the universe. Why? Because though the story of mankind has been one of grave injustice after grave injustice, for the Christian, we know the end of the story. 
See, the story of the gospel is that God sees the grave injustices of the world. He sees the ways that maybe we have perpetuated injustice directly or the ways that we have been passive or apathetic to the injustices that exist. He sees these grave injustices, injustices that condemn us before God's perfect throne of righteousness and justice, a condemnation that comes with consequences. He sees us in that state. He knows that because we often are trapped under the sun, that we do not have the power in and of ourselves to get out of the cycles of constant injustice. And so, out of love, out of mercy, out of compassion, because he is righteous, because he is just, in his mercy, God comes. He sends his son in order that we might be alleviated of our constant cycles, that we might be alleviated of the the consequences of our rebellion that is seen in injustice. He sends his son, Jesus Christ, to live a perfect life of justice, a perfect life of righteousness. And though he was free of all injustice, the story of the gospel is that he takes upon himself our continual injustice on the cross. So that when we trust in this work that he accomplishes for us on the cross, we are made righteous. We are made just as we stand before the throne of God. One of the beautiful realities of trusting in Jesus is that we are justified. What is that? It means that everything that we have done that ought to cause us to be rejected from the throne of God, it means that because of what Jesus has done and the consequences that he takes upon himself, those are removed. So now we can stand before the throne of God in confidence. A perfectly righteous God sees us as righteous not because of our own righteousness, but because of the righteousness of Jesus. The cross is the perfect picture of justice. Justice that punishes and deals with the consequences of injustice, but justice that is merciful as Christ has taken our injustice upon himself. But that's not the end of the story. Because we cannot just stop at the cross. Because it's also in his resurrection where we have an experience of the full hope that comes as a result of what he has accomplished. The resurrection of Jesus proves the power of Christ, the power that he has over the ultimate injustice, which of course is death itself. His resurrection proves that he will restore the cosmos to a place of perfect justice when the kingdom of God is experienced in its fullness. And that, my friends, that is the moral arc of justice in the universe. If you want to understand how the universe is bending toward justice, you have to look at Jesus, the one who has accomplished a perfect justice that will be experienced in its fullness one day when he returns. That's the justice that we long for. When we strive to work for justice now, what is it? It's not an attempt to rid the world of injustice because that's never going to happen. When we as the church strive for justice, it's our way of making that invisible kingdom visible now. And so, as we look to Jesus, look at his perfect justice and the perfect justice that we will experience one day when he returns, that then empowers us 
to be a just people, to be a just people that are out in the world in our various places where God has placed us, working for justice. Whatever that might look like, that probably looks very different for all of us, but working for mishpah. What are the ways that we can be ensuring that people are being treated equitably in the systems and structures of all the different places we might be? But it also encourages us and helps us be a people who live rightly amongst one another in such a way that if, if we were to live uh, with Zedekah in mind, in perfect alignment with God's justice in our interpersonal relationships, then being concerned about systems and structures wouldn't need to exist. How can we be a people that engages in these things well by looking to Jesus, the one who has justified us? May that empower us to be a people who are just, making the invisible kingdom visible now. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you're just and righteous, perfect and blameless. God, we don't want to serve a God who is anything less than that. The problem, of course, comes when we recognize that we are not just, we are not righteous, we are not perfect, and we are filled with blame. But God, we thank you for the work of Jesus, a work that takes all of that wickedness and sin away from us, places it on our Savior, the one who takes the consequences of that injustice, that rejection of your throne, so that as we now stand before that perfect throne, we stand there justified. We stand there righteous in Jesus. And God, I pray that that would not be an abstraction. Lord, I pray against that becoming an abstraction for us. But Lord, I pray that that so deeply moves us that we then want to be a people who make known the glories and the beauties of your justice known in this world. Help us as your people to be a people that takes, as Calvin said, the invisible kingdom and making it visible. Help us, God. We cannot do it without your spirit. And so may your spirit be at work in us. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. For more information on our church and how you can support what God is doing through our church, go to www.reh.nyc.